Well, please turn in your Bibles to Paul's letter to Titus, Titus chapter 3. The page number in the blue Bibles is 998. I want to thank the worship team for leading us there. So wonderful to sing of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read the first seven verses. Although we're reading in an English translation, this is the very Word of God. Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you pray with me now? Almighty God, we thank you for the divine intervention that you have wrought in our lives, even the gift of Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son, even the gift of a Savior, even one who lived and died for sins, who was buried in the tomb, who rose from the dead on the third day, who was resurrected, witnessed, and seen, and who ascended into heaven and who is coming again, Jesus Christ our Lord. Holy Father, we ask that by Your Spirit, You would cause us to see that that truth, even the gift and the appearance of Jesus Christ, is the most important thing in our lives. We do pray that you would help us to cherish Christ, even to cherish the worship of Christ. And oh Lord, we we thank you that in this land we have freedom to worship you this morning. We don't want to take that for granted, that we can worship you freely in spirit and in truth. We rejoice at all the good things you've given to us. Lord, we're so easily filled with ingratitude, but we want to thank you this morning. We thank you for new life, for new babies, for new spiritual life as people are are being born from above, born again. We thank you for the children in our midst, 
We thank you that they could learn out at Young's Farm, that they could be discipled and evangelized and discipled at home. We thank you for teenagers that are seeking to follow you, to, to honor you, to obey you in all their lives. We think of college students as they are out there facing even the challenges of a hostile world and seeking to live for you. We pray for them. We thank you even for all of the new life witnessed in this church. It is completely from you, and so we want to thank you for that. We do pray for those who are hurting, those who are grieving, even grieving the loss of loved ones even recently. Lord, death is a tragedy and a natural thing, even the wages of sin, but not, not as it was in the garden. And so we lament death. We do thank you that there is hope of life beyond the grave, and we grieve and mourn as those who do have hope. Lord, I just pray that you would comfort those who are suffering with physical illness, suffering in relationships, suffering even with thwarted desires and longings. Lord, I just pray that you would give them comfort this morning. As well, Lord, we just thank you for good gospel-preaching churches. Just think of a couple of churches this morning. Think of Grace Chapel, Grace Church in Kalispell, Montana, where I preached a few weeks ago. Just thank you for that church that's only five hours away from us. We just pray that it would continue to have a witness for the gospel in the midst of many churches, but very few good churches. We just thank you for that ministry there. Help them during their, menis- their ministry transition. Also think of another church very connected to us, Emmanuel Baptist in Louisville, Kentucky, a church that's praying for our church this morning. And we just thank you for that church, for Ryan Fullerton and the ministry down there. We pray your hand would be upon that work, and especially we pray that the many Canadians worshiping there would come back and minister in their home country. Lord, we do pray for the work of evangelism in our city. We pray that you would put the gospel on our lips and that we would be free to share it, that we would want to share it, that we would share it with many, those that we know and those that we don't know well. We pray that we would be a gospel people, even as Gavin had read for us in the liturgy, that we would be people of the evangel and that we would be bold to proclaim it, to testify to it, for this is a lost lost city. We pray that you would give us that kind of insight and boldness, even the filling of your spirit, so that we would be those who testify to the gospel. And even as we reflect on the gospel now, as we hear your word, Lord, we pray even in the words of Psalm 147 that that you would send your word to us and that you would actually melt us, melt our hearts And make the waters flow. Do it now. Come and visit us. Send your word, Lord. Send it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's good to be back. Um, We were here last Sunday. heard Pastor Gavin preach an excellent sermon. But just for me to be back in the pulpit, just reflecting on uh, my wife and I and my family, our time away in Montana in the Flathead Valley, speaking at a church and at a, at a camp. 
It's good to be back, but it was interesting being there because there were Christians everywhere. Christians everywhere. I mean, it was, it was really weird. So you went to the ice cream parlor, and the kids scooping the ice cream Well, he'd been a missionary in Guatemala. Or we were at Chipotle, and if you don't know what Chipotle is, well, you're missing out, sorry. I can't, I can't describe it to you. It's awesome, uh, awesome food. We're sitting there, and the one guy's sitting in front of us, this big, burly, mountain man, biker-looking dude, well, he takes his hat off and prays with his equally burly biker-looking wife, and they pray for their meal. The guy sitting next to us, him and his wife, they were talking about the, well, it was Sunday afternoon, I guess we weren't Sabbatarians, but they were speaking about, speaking about the sermon they had heard at a different church. Christians everywhere. We went to the rodeo. The boys are in the rodeo. The rodeo announcer, when he does a cowboy prayer, he doesn't just read some prayer. He prays it. He prays, he thanks God for the freedom to worship, the freedom to pray, the freedom to have a rodeo. There's Christians everywhere. But what it did, coming back, it just reminded me that we are in a missionary context here. We're in a missionary context here in Canada. If you're here in Canada and you're a Christian, you are a missionary. It's just a fact. That's not... Not some kind of quaint motivational slogan. It's just a fact. There are very, very few true Christians in Canada. So your life, your actions, your words are always, always uttered as a Christian in a non-Christian context. Now, just a fact. You're a missionary. And it's your missionary as much as if you're in Papua New Guinea or if you're in Saudi Arabia. And I should add, I just talked to a friend this summer who was here back in Alberta who lives in Saudi Arabia. And he was surprised at our context here in contrast to Saudi Arabia. And he made the point, yeah, you guys are the missionaries here. So, it, so it's good to kind of realize that. And you might say, oh, well, you're going to object, say, yeah, Canada. Canada has access to the gospel far more than other, all these other missionary contexts. And that may be true in a certain sense. But I would counter, and I would say very simply, and I would just ask, who? Who? Who, who will deliver the gospel message? Who will do it? The, the, the gospel testimony that is personal, that is present, that is brought in a living way. Sure, there are books, there are radio programs, there's the internet. But who are the people who are going to personally engage one-to-one with a real living person and testify to the gospel? There just isn't that many in Canada. There's not many in this city. As I remarked on the number of churches, and specifically the number of even broadly good churches in Calgary, telling my American friends, in a city of 1.4 million, they were shocked. They didn't realize there were so few of us. It's not saying there there are good churches in the city, but we just need way more of them. We just need tons more. 
I need ones on every corner. So who will deliver that message? And that's kind of the point, not only now, but that was the point in Crete. If you recall, as we, we've been looking at the, Paul's letter to Titus, this was written to that, that region in the Mediterranean, that island of Crete. And Titus was to go there and put things in order, as it says in chapter 1, to set it up in order. And so you have these converts, converts to Christianity in Crete. And those converts, they needed to think like missionaries. They needed to think like that. They might be converted Cretans, but they were bringing the gospel and bringing a a gospel culture to their own people. And in a sense, because they were Christians now, they were actually being cross-cultural missionaries even in their own homeland. And that's a little bit how it is here. I mean, I would, I would argue that just the, the way that this church is pro-life and pro-family according to the Word of God, there's kids everywhere. There's just passel of kids all over the place. But that goes against the trends of the culture. It's very counter-cultural. And nobody's necessarily doing it, you know, to stick it to the man. It's just the way it is because we're following the Scriptures. It's being a missionary, a cross-cultural missionary. And that's how it was then at the time when the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to Titus, who was his delegate, his missionary delegate. And I, that's what I'm saying. It's, it's the same today. We are, a, we are cro- counter-cultural missionaries in our own land, whether you like it or not. And so thinking about our missionary context, that's going to help us then appreciate how this text applies to us. And I want to look then at three reminders. It should be in the bulletin. If not, you can remember this because it is all about remembering. Three things that we're remembering. We're remembering first, we're remembering authority. Secondly, we're remembering sin. And thirdly, and most importantly, We're remembering justification. Well, first off then, seeing this, remembering authority. You see it there, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Now, in texts like these, the temptation is to immediately look for possible exceptions. But we we shouldn't do that. We sometimes... Uh, we, shouldn't, we, we shouldn't assume that this single statement isn't impacted by the rest of the canon. It is. But we need to feel the force of the text here as given to the Cretans, as given to Titus. And, and then we can consider whether there's other passages that, other, that will inform this text as it applies to us today. But you know, that's how we always have to take the exposition of the Word of God. We, we have to understand the whole of God's teaching and craft a, a theology that summarizes the whole. But the main emphasis here in verse 1 is to clarify the obligations, the duties which Christians have outside of their homes and outside of the churches to the layers of authority that provide us with social order. 
There are layers of authority that provide us with social order. So we are to remind them, Titus is, remind these Cretans to be submissive to rulers and authorities. So Titus, Titus needs to teach the Cretan professing Christians that they can't live as if there is no government. That's anarchy. Uh, the, the, the idea of rulers and authorities, the word is arche, and that's to, to live without arche is anarche, anarchy. No, they're not to live that way. Now, you could follow along. I'm going to jump to a couple of other passages here just to kind of show Paul's teaching here. Paul had written to the Roman church already, and he taught in Romans chapter 13. You, you know it well. We've all been sawing through these things for the last two years. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So that's Romans 13, verses 1 and 2. Now, later on, in the later days of persecution... Peter, Peter could write in 1 Peter chapter 2, and again, you know this text, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And that was 1 Peter 2, verses 13 to 17. But then you have... Uh, going back in your Bible and actually back in time, was in Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, you, you have the narrative in Acts chapter 5, and you actually have an instance where an angel defies the government. Acts chapter 5, the, the angel, in Acts 5, you know how, it, how the story goes, the, the angel comes and basically breaks the apostles out of jail. Now, although the angel resisted and defied the judicial imprisonment of the apostles after the apostles were preaching the gospel obediently to God, they were brought to the court council again. Now, there's no indication that they resisted arrest or that they rejected the authority of the court council itself, even though that court was populated by Jewish unbelievers, like they weren't Christians. Now, at the court, we're told in Acts chapter 5 and verse 20, they said, this is what the court said, we strictly charged you. So there's the authority. You catch that? We strictly charged you not to teach in, his name, in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. In verse 29, the... Uh, the Peter and the, and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. Well, there's, 
there's a hierarchy of authority. There's a hierarchy of authority. It's not saying that men don't have authority, but there is a hierarchy, and in that hierarchy, God's authority is higher than the authority of men. They said, verse 30 of Acts 5, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to to those who obey him, obeying the highest authority above all. And that's Acts 5, 28 to 32. So what is clear from these texts is that God appoints authorities over our lives, whether there's those authorities that are seen. So, different levels of government, for example. We see them. But he also appoints even unseen authorities, namely the angels, laws of gravity, thermodynamics, photosynthesis, Our world, and this is something all Christians need to come back to, our world is a constituted world of order. It is an ordered world. And if you think it's not an ordered world, then you will be a lawless, godless person. It is the spirit of the age to say there is no order. How else can people say that a man can become a woman? Or a woman become a man. There's no order there. Right? You know, even the, you know, the documentary that's out there. What is a woman? And some people cannot literally say what a woman is. Well, that's because they don't believe there is any order. It is all chaos. No, we live in a constituted world of order. There is a this, then a that. Not the other way around. And so authority, whether in governments, or in a marriage, or in a home, or in a workplace, all of these realms of authority are delegated positions under God, delegated by God. So what can happen then is we can forget God. We can forget God. And if we can forget God, then we can forget God's ordering of authority. We can forget the authority that we possess. We can forget how authority is delegated to us by God. And we can also forget that we are accountable for how we exercise authority and how we respond to authority. Now, the Cretan Christians, they could do the same. They could forget. And that's why Paul had to say in verse 1 of Titus 3, remind them, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Now, there is then a sense in which then this submission to authorities is always within the context where we are submitting to to those who don't agree with us, or submitting to those where, in a sense, we, we are not in agreement, and even there's some hostility there. 
Because the fact is, we've always been in exile. God's people have always been in exile. Our first parents were excluded from the Garden of Eden. God's people were exiled in lands such as Egypt and Babylon, or in Hellenist Asia, or in Roman Judea. The rulers and authorities are, you know, I mean, there would only be the very rarest exceptions. But the rulers and authorities are godless. That's assumed. And if they're godless, then they can have qualities even like the beast of Revelation in Revelation 13. Where they said in Revelation 13:4, Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? You know, or like Babylon, the great city of Revelation 18, 18. What city is like that great city? The city of man. You know, and Augustine then wrote his book, The City of Man versus the City of God. All of these authority structures are fallen. See, this is the thing. There's, a, there's an illusion that happens amongst Christians that thinks, well, if we can only get the, the guys into power who then are the Christians, then it'll be all roses. And yet, all of these authority structures are fallen because of sin. And yet, their structure is a platform. It's a backdrop. It's a stage upon which God desires to display His glory. It's, as Calvin said, it is the theater of His, God, of His glory displayed. Now, these authority structures that even we're to submit to, these authority structures are marked by what Galatians 4.3 says are the elementary principles of the world. Now, I'm not going to go too deep into that, but the stoicheia to cosmo. But it's the I, scholars understand this as it's like the ABC building, the, the building blocks of the world, but it's got this demonic tinge to it. It's because it's cursed, it's fallen. Paul said in Galatians 4.3, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. What I want you to see is that all authority in the world that is fallen, it's even structurally affected by sin. There is a structural cursedness. You know, and if I wanted to use a, a lingo that's thrown around today, there is a sense of systemic sin that affects all authority. So that's a, but that's, I'm just trying to establish, that's what's to be assumed when we understand what Paul is remind, telling Titus to remind the Cretans of. Under God's economy, under God's economy, he is even able to use fallen authority to order his world and to bring good out of it. And if you don't believe me, just look at your marriage. Right? There's, there's lots of good coming out of the marriages in this church, but, there, you know, it's marriage of sinners. There's authority structures there. There's, it's, it's got sin in it. But God orchestrates it to bring out much good. So fallen rulers and fallen empires can be the soil out of which flourish God's kingdom, His citizens, His church. Of course, the promise 
to the church regarding the fallen authorities, especially governments, is this in, in Revelation 18.20, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. So there, nobody's getting away with anything. I know we all think that there's people in government or whatever, they're getting away with stuff. Well, nobody gets away with it. I mean, if you're an atheist, yeah, everybody gets away with everything. But if you believe there is a God who judges, then when Hitler commits suicide in a Berlin bunker, he does not get away with his crimes. He is judged and goes to hell for an eternal punishment. He doesn't get away with it. Now, as God permits His common grace, He appoints authority over us to test us, to refine us, to make us more dependent on God rather than men, and to show us that God is free to glorify Himself in ways that seem very unlikely to us. What's more unlikely than seeing your own Messiah, the one who you've prayed about and longed for to bring you deliverance, and to see him get crucified on the tree. Like, I mean, if we were there, we'd all think, I guess that's it. I guess the movement's over. It's done. You know, our guy, we had such high hopes. Yeah, he's dead. That's, it's over. Let's go, you know, let's go fishing. Go back to doing something else. So what I want us to see off the hop is that Paul's exhortation to Titus is not naive. It's not, it's not passive it's not living in a fairy tale. It's submitting to authority structures, authority structures, fallen as they are, because God is on the throne and He will hold everyone accountable. Now, when you are remembering that authority that's from God, your tone will change. And yes, I know there's backlash against the tone police and political correctness, and rightly so. I think a lot of the backlash against the tone police is very justified, in my opinion. But we really need to listen to the Word of God here, because what does it say? Verse 2, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. This is not denying that we speak truth to power. This still is Nathan being able to confront David and say, you are the man. But this is, this, this is the idea of speaking evil of people who are created in the image of God. This is Christians who have a sticker or a flag that has our Prime Minister's name on it with the letter F in front of it. I'm not going to say anything else about that because it's godless. Calvin said, We know, quote, We know that there is nothing to which the disposition of every man is more prone than to despise others in comparison of himself. Yet, he does not wish them to flatter the vices of wicked men. He only condemns the propensity to slander. 
So it's not, it's not that we can't speak truth to power and confront. We must confront. We must speak the truth, but that's a loving thing. So that we cannot speak evil. Speak evil of no one. Verse 2, second part, avoid quarreling. Right now, in our circles, to say, yeah, you should, you should avoid quarreling. That's starting to look like a sign of weakness. As if, as if, you, if you're avoiding quarreling, you're wanting to capitulate to the false teaching of Satan. But really, much of the quarreling that goes on is simply the expression of the flesh, not the spirit. Uh, Brian Matson, I've been reading some of his material. He's a Westminster Seminary professor. He does stuff with Andrew Sandlin. He does stuff with some of the Rush Dooney descendants, actually. He made this observation about a social media post that he saw from a pastor. So this is a Facebook post that a pastor wrote. And Matson says this. He says, quote, In the course of this single Facebook post, I counted at least 12 personal insults directed at others. Name-calling. Attempts at hearty-har, yuckety-yuck humor at the expense of others. And it was remarkable how the author had some kind of clairvoyant access into the secret motivations of his subjects. They do what they do because they, unlike him, we are left to presume, love the world, want to be liked, or are just plain sellouts and compromisers. It was, shall we say, rather muscular and bombastic rhetoric. And this is not some kind of aberration or oversight or heat of the moment outburst. This is very important. This kind of writing is by careful design, unquote. See, that's not avoiding quarreling. That is looking for a fight, not necessarily where the lines are drawn between good and evil and what must be said and confronting that, but actually looking for a fight for different reasons, either to satisfy the flesh or for the purpose of pride to gain attention. It's certainly a far cry from being gentle. Again, we listen too much to the world that thinks that to be gentle means that you are weak. No, to be gentle means that you have mastery of self-control. Because, you know, it, it's with the boys doing a lot of horse work lately. Well, if you're gentle with the horse, you're gentle with the horse's mouth you can direct him with the very slightest pressure, but it takes great self-control on, on your own movements. If you don't have self-control, what do you do? You just give him a jerk. Just, just jerk him. But it's not gentle. And it's not self-controlled. So when you see a man who is extremely capable and very courageous and who can speak truth to power, and you see him being gentle you know he is absolutely under control and everything he says is precisely what he intends to say for the glory of God. You know, and so so that, that has to be then taken into account, being gentle. And even then, I think this is very convicting to me, showing perfect courtesy toward all people. 
showing perfect courtesy toward all people. Jesus said, and Gavin, I think, alluded to the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Matthew 5, 5, 5. Meekness is not weakness. Showing courtesy is not weakness. It takes a certain strength to treat people with dignity as created in the image of God, even as they might be acting in rebellious, false, wicked ways. Sometimes the courteous thing is to prevent them from hurting themselves, like a nurse might do. It's always, I always marvel at nurses who have patients that are going to do themselves harm and others harm and, and just the way that a nurse can be firm, clear, but also caring and gentle. You know, that's, that'd be an example. Sometimes the courteous thing is correcting behavior, like a boss does, or like a parent does. It's done with courtesy, even to the apparently undeserving And why do I bring up the undeserving? I say this because that's kind of how most of us act most of the time. We view some people as deserving of our attention and others not. Some deserve our kindness and some do not. Some deserve our scorn. And right now, all of us are getting trained in this calculus, in this kind of this catechism of social media. We are being trained by it to be kind to our heroes and be kind to our tribe and to heap scorn on anybody who we don't think deserves our attention or our goodness. But that's antithetical. That's different than the gospel. What about giving grace and kindness and courtesy and gratuity toward the undeserving person. An undeserving government. Ah. Do they deserve it? My opinion, most of the time, no. But but do I extend undeserved favor to them? Well, yeah, I'm called to. Or an undeserving church member. An undeserving pastor. All of a sudden, it corrects some of our thinking because we think, oh yeah, well, these people, they don't deserve me giving them the time. We don't deserve me being gentle. They don't deserve me being in any way gracious. But then how do you do that? Because that's the issue. We can spot it and say, yeah, I'm not being, <laughs> I'm not being very gracious to the undeserving. I want to get back at them, to be honest. So tell me, how how do I change? How do I respond? What do I do? Well, that's Paul's advice for the Cretans and now to us. We have to, verse 3, we have to remember our sin. You see it there. Verse 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy hated by others and hating one another. It's a list. You can go through it very easily. It describes anyone and everyone 
without Christ. It's a description of mankind. You know, a good little test that you can ask yourself when you're thinking about, there, there's, think about somebody who you naturally don't like. Here's the little test. Uh, I mean, let, well, let's be concrete. Okay, let me suggest, maybe there's somebody you don't like, like Justin Trudeau, or Gustavo Perro from Colombia, or Mohamedou Buhari in Nigeria, or whoever. Just trying to be aware of who's in the congregation here. I read up. These are people that are not liked. And you think of the list of sins in verse 3. And they all apply to these people that we don't like. They apply. Crystal and I were, after, after the youth group, we went for ice cream on Friday night. And I saw a guy at the ice cream parlor that I was pretty sure was a local city councilor that, if I'm honest, I would say I do not like. I don't like him. I'm just being very honest. I don't like him. But then, because I knew I was preaching this, I had to go through this little exercise in my head. I'm like, oh yeah. Oh yeah. He actually does exhibit verse 3 characteristics. But then, without Christ, so do I. Because like the old saying goes, as soon as you point the finger at someone else, what? You got all those fingers pointing back at you. The point is to remember the doctrine of sin. Hamartia in Greek, so hamartiology in the theology books. How had sin corrupted us? We have to recall that. That's a good reminder for Christians. Even though God, Hebrews 8.12, even though God doesn't remember our sins anymore, very important, God doesn't remember our sins anymore. Hebrews 8, 12, going back to Jeremiah 31. He doesn't remember them anymore when they are washed in the blood of the Lamb. Even, even that's the case. We can remember how great is the grace of God, how great it was to us when we remember how lost we really were. And I'll tell you, if we don't remember this, then we'll start to think, and it happens to us all, we'll start to think that we are righteous because we are clever. Or that we are Christians because we are better. Or that we are saved because we are strong. And that is false. That's not the gospel. If we don't remember this, we'll have then this rosy view of people all other people, and we'll think that the world is always right, the majority is always right, that people are nice, that people are good, and that they don't really need salvation. Why don't we evangelize? Well, everybody seems to be fairly well adjusted around us. They don't seem to need salvation. So we don't bother to share the gospel that they need to repent of their sins or they're going to hell. The Christian has a humble, sympathetic, accurate understanding of unregenerate sinners. And that's why even if you're here as a visitor and you don't know Jesus Christ, we're so glad that you're here, so encouraged that you've come. But it's interesting that God actually knows you better than you know yourself. 
See, the Christian understands themselves accurately, too, because Christians, they pay attention to the tense of the verb here. And you're like, oh, what does grammar have to do with this? Grammar is everything when it comes to God's verbal inspiration. Look at verse 3 there. See it there. For we ourselves were once. We ourselves were once. Not we are, present tense. No. We were, past tense. The Christian has a fundamental shift in their default setting. It doesn't mean that we can't sin. We can and we do. But when the Christian sins, it is the flesh principle that remains in us. It is not our default nature anymore. In other words, when the Christian sins, it is out of character. They are acting then against type. When the non-Christian sins, they are acting according to type. They are consistent with their nature. And this list is there not to say how bad you are, but to say how bad you were. And the idea then is it highlights the power and the capacity and the kindness and love of God to save you what he had to do to save you. It sets up that doctrinal truth that the Cretans and all of us need to remember the most, our justification. Our justification brings me then to the third point, remembering justification. Look at it, verse 4. And just listen to the sweetness of this interruption. But, but, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, I mean, what an interruption by God. He breaks in. He breaks in. You know, Tolkien, I've used this before, but Tolkien crafted a word for it. He called it a eucatastrophe. It's not a catastrophe, which is a, an inbreaking of all kinds of bad chaos. No, it's a eucatastrophe. It's an inbreaking of goodness. Where would you be? Where would I be without God's inbreaking of goodness in my life? Undeserved goodness to me. It's a eucatastrophe, an epic inbreaking of goodness. And this appearing not only includes his coming to earth, his dying on the cross, and his rising from the dead, but also the application of his salvation to our hearts. When he sends it, boys, right? He sends it, he sends it into our hearts. Redemption accomplished and applied, John Murray. It's applied. Paul says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, verse 5, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Oh, I mean, it's just one of the most beautiful descriptions of the work of salvation given in any language. But notice clearly verse 5, 
He saved us. He saved us. This is not to be skipped over. God does the saving. God does the saving. We are in need of the saving. If we are to be saved, it must be God who does it. And anyone who thinks they can get out of this world on their own terms is a fool. We must appeal to God because we are lost and He is the Deliverer. He is the Saver. He is the Savior. And and if this is called Calvinism, who cares? It's just grace. Call it what you want. But notice as well that the works done in righteousness, referred to in verse 5, is matched in verse 7 by the phrase, being justified by His grace. That is, His undeserved favor. So this framing in verses 5 and 7, it means that we cannot escape the fact that our world is a courtroom. Our world is a courtroom. Everything is ethical. There is a law by which all are held accountable. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. The royal law cannot be ignored. Law and gospel fundamentally frame our lives. Now, the logic of the world is that if we're lost, well, We can save ourselves, and so we input our own coordinates into our own personal GPS, and we think that's going to lead us out of the boonies of sin and damnation. But we can't do works of righteousness that will save us. We can't do it. So all my sermon illustrations are going to come uh, from Friday night. and my wife and I dropped a vehicle full of kids off at the youth group on Friday night. We were joke, joke with DJ McLeod. He guessed that we were going to Walmart for a kid-free date. And I said, no, we're going to Ikea. <laughs> Very upscale. But when I was there, I saw how there's this vast social program, this religious program that says you have to do works of righteousness in order to be socially justified. And so we we get to Ikea. And I hadn't been there for a long time. And then there's all this propaganda as soon as you walk in. And it's promoting things that the Bible says are against nature. But for Ikea, who are in the business of money-making, like they want to make money, they thought that they needed to do those works of righteousness, displaying those symbols, in order to be justified by the secular world, their customers. So they're looking for justification from the market, and so they're doing works of righteousness to earn the favor, to earn the justification of the customer. Now what's clear then Wherever you go and whatever, wherever you are in society, the elementary principles of the world make everything around us, they make it a ladder to climb, they, they make it a mirror of comparison, they make everything a court of public opinion. Everything. Everything's a ladder, everything's a mirror, 
a mirror on your phone. Everything's a mirror of comparison, and everything's a court of public opinion. But the marvel, and if, especially if you're here and you're, you're, this is new to you, the marvel of the Christian message, and it's something that maybe you've never heard of, maybe you've never really understood before, the marvel is this. If God declares you innocent, His court is higher, higher than all the other courts of authority in the world. So there is no other ladder as tall. There is no mirror so clear. And that's why then Paul had said to the Romans in Romans 8.1, you know it well, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As Wesley sang, no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in Him is mine. It's mine. I have possession of it. So rather than earning points on an impossible social scale or an impossible religious scale, we have to resign ourselves to being unable to earn anything. By contrast, Jesus, we know, Philippians 2, he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So he earned, if we want to put it in medieval terms, he earned that merit. He earned it. He kept the standard. He earned every point possible for a human being. He paid it all. He did it all. He earned it all. And when he said on the cross, it is finished, it was finished. So when God views the sinner who hides themselves in Jesus Christ, all he sees then is the obedient righteousness of the incarnate Son. And all he can do is declare that Jesus Christ and all who are raised with Christ by faith He declares Jesus and us to be just in His sight. That's what He sees when He sees you. He sees you as just in His sight. And so Paul says, God saved us according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. And so you are washed clean. You are born again. You are made a new creation. And the result then of that justification before God is that we are adopted. Adopted into God's family. Made inheritors of His kingdom. Co-heirs with Christ. Being able to say, our Father. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Everybody knows about eternal life from John 3.16. But verse 7 is saying that we are royal heirs full of hope for our eternal life that is an eternal inheritance. You see, you see how that hits? It hits a little different than just saying eternal life. It's that, oh, it's actually an eternal royal inheritance. Don't you see the dignity that God gives to the Christian believer? You see, remembering justification has a clarifying power. We know that we are clearly accepted by God because there is no condemnation. There's no bad scorecard. There's no failed performance review. There's no prosecution of guilt. Jesus took our sins. He took our crimes. He took our failures on Himself at the cross. 
And when we believe in Him, His justification becomes our own. And this matters, though. This matters, then, for how we live in this fallen, structured world. Because if we remember our justification, we are free to render obedience to delegated authorities, not because they are good or because they are sinless, but because they are situated under the sovereignty of God. It's God's business to raise them up or to tear them down. We bear witness to God as we live justified by Him, yet showing courtesy to all. Now, I'm just going to make a real quick comment. We're all dying here, or at least I'm sweating to death. But basically, this, by way of application, just to say three things very quickly. This means no anarchy by way of summary. No antinomianism. You may say, oh yeah, the government's there, but I'm going to pick and choose what I want to obey, just because. Well, no, we're not going to live that way. But the third thing is, is when we understand the hierarchy of authority, if there's no anarchy, there's no antinomianism, there's also no allowance for abuse. And what do I mean by that? Paul's not making an unqualified statement about submission in every case, especially in cases of a broken social covenant. And that's what, how I would define abuse, or like kind of almost more, more, uh, more in terms covenantally what's going on with abuse. See, our justification before God, that, that's going to help the abused wife or the abused Christian group when they recognize the limits of their obligations. They submit to a husband or to a government, but when the husband or the government acts in a way that attacks their covenant partner, then they've betrayed the covenant. they betrayed the terms of the relationship. So it is not an authority submission issue, it's a betrayal of the office, a betrayal of the status or role. And, and just lately, it's been brought to my attention through different folks, I'm just want to be sensitive to victims of abuse who feel that the Bible is telling them that they must continue to be abused. That is not true. Abuse is an abandonment and a betrayal of the terms of a covenant. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul allows for divorce on that basis. He also allows for slaves in 1 Corinthians 7 to take their freedom if they can get it. But slaves or wives or citizens are not to be looking for ways out, not for looking for a way around the rules, just because they discover that their master or their husband or their government are sinners who act sinfully. Now, it takes wisdom to discern when governments or husbands are merely behaving badly, or bosses or whoever it is, when they're behaving even sinfully, and when they're actually betraying the covenants, and attacking their own partners. Now, I had all kinds of illustrations to show this. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to skip over that. The point is that there ought to be then this circumspection about where is, the, where is the authority here and how is it relating and are we still operating on the same terms? Or is that covenant, whether in a marriage or in a government or in some other employee relationship, has that 
then somehow been betrayed and is actually being destroyed. But the point of this, actually, the point of this passage, and that's what I want to finish with, is how do we act? How do we act? The manner. There's a Christian manner of speaking that only comes from remembering our justification. And so I put it to you. I just refer to Matson speaking about that Facebook post that was designed to be mean. And he said this quote. He said, boy, is there a market for that. That is, Christians being mean. There's no arguing, but that it gets the clicks. A friend of his, and he said... Him and I, we frequently lament to each other that there is, alas, only one surefire way to make sure that our audience triples or quadruples for any particular post. Criticize some Christian public figure. Even mildly, people crave it. Watching someone go hammer and tongs against some perceived enemy or sellout stimulates all the pleasure centers of the brain. It is, I believe, an actual addiction. It provides some kind of sweet, sweet hit of dopamine. This is a pleasure of the flesh, I think Paul would say. And maybe he isn't talking figuratively. Maybe it's literally a pleasure of the gray matter between our ears. So with all of that, I just want to encourage us, as Paul does, to remember our justification. The damnation of sin from which God saved us. And in remembering, find the strength and the grace to submit to authority, to discern its limits, and I'll tell you what, for all of us, to show perfect courtesy to all people. That's what we need to do in a missionary context. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we just ask that you would humble us, give us great, keen discernment, and cause us to be a people who live knowing how great your grace is toward us in justification. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please rise and stand as we sing and worship in response to such a gracious God. Our prayer here is that if Christ isn't your hope in life and death, that he would be, and he can be, and you can look to him. And for all those who are in Christ, then we leave here remembering this, Ephesians 4, 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's the foundation, his forgiveness his justification. Go with that truth on your mind. Go in peace. You're dismissed.